0: Hello, and welcome back to the show once again. And as always, I am your host, dear Prudence, also known as Daniel Mallory Ortberg. And with me in the studio this week is Sydney Hodges, a DC resident who, in addition to being interested in conflict resolution, is also a recovering armchair linguist who has found peace with only having a BA in linguistics. Sydney, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Danny. It's great to be here.
0: And thank you so much for clarifying that you are merely interested in conflict resolution. You are not, in <laughs> fact, uh, a professional conflict resolver or resolutionizer or some other word.
1: <laughs> that is that is correct. Yes.
0: Are you more interested in resolving other people's conflict?
1: Ooh, good question. Um, mostly, yes. I, I, it's it's one of those things where you know it's better. It's easier to give advice to others than to um, follow your own advice.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's exactly how I got this job. So I share that. <laughs> um, what part of linguist are you recovering from? Is it the armchair part or is it the linguist part or is it both? Ooh,
1: um, it's it's really more of the yearning to be like a real linguist. Um, and uh, nowadays I just sort of, uh, you know, I'll follow like a few linguists on Twitter and Um, You know, spat off interesting language facts to folks. Um, But most of the time, uh, I find that if if folks are um, demeaning or shaming people for the way they talk, um, that's where the bulk of my linguistics degree comes into use. Right. Um, Right. I get to tell them just how wrong they are.
0: (laughs) You know, and there's nothing more satisfying than using um, your own particular expertise to tell somebody else that they're wrong. And in that spirit, I hope that we're able to give really good advice today and or maybe uh, we can tell each other when we're wrong. Um, But would you read our very first letter? I would.
1: Subject line, gift-giving addict with gift in quotation marks. Dear Prudence, My mom is close with her sister-in-law, who has always been pushy and invasive, but means well. My aunt considers herself an expert in fashion and home decor, and she's addicted to online shopping, like during Thanksgiving dinner addicted. Her now adult daughters have, understandably, hit their limit and are starting to draw firm boundaries. Their mom was mailing an endless stream of gifts to their homes, ordering them new clothes and furnishings day after day. They explained why she needed to stop, but nothing resonated. They finally had to scream at her on the phone, which was effective, But she's deeply offended. Why are my daughters so mean to me? And baffled as to why they wouldn't want the items. Now she's redirecting her online shopping energy toward my mom. So far, it's only been boxes of clothes arriving at the front door, none of which are my mom's style or even her size, but I easily foresee it escalating into furniture and other hard-to-return purchases. Normal refusals like, we don't have the space, or these just aren't my style, do not deter my aunt, whose natural responses are, then get rid of something else, or your style needs an overhaul. My mom is very non-confrontational and would never yell at my aunt like her, like her daughters did. Do you have any suggestions of how to get her to stop, and ideally permanently, so she doesn't just move on to the next victim?
0: That last question gets really ambitious. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know. I think that there are absolutely ways in which your mother can talk to her and set a boundary that does not mean she has to scream. Um, And it might be great to um, have an idea of your own because there's just a really good chance that eventually your aunt will um, choose you as her next, like, beneficiary. But, Mm -hmm. like... I would try to limit your scope to I think at most you and or your mother can encourage her to consider this not uh, an outpouring of generosity but an actual problem that needs help. Um, But no, I don't think that the two of you or or even just your mom are going to be able to um, single-handedly help a woman – See this as a problem when she's already like reduced her daughters to the point of screaming, um, and just is like, "Wow, what's their deal? That's so weird." Like she's pretty, she's pretty far gone at this point. It sounds like.
1: Yeah, yeah, I would agree. Um, initially, when I, when I first when I did a first pass of this, um, I kind of gave the the sister in law a charitable read. You know, given that she means well, maybe she's maybe this is the only um, means of expressing affection that she really knows how to do. But when I got to the part where, um, you know, she, the way she responds to, you know, we don't have the space or these aren't my style, she actually pushes back mm-hmm. and sort of refuses to see a reason. Um, so, yeah, that, that to me points out that there's, there's a lot, there, there's something deeper here. Um, and I'd actually be really interested to ask the sister-in-law, you know, um, how does this serve you? And how do you think this is serving others when you know hmm. that these gifts aren't welcome? You know? Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I think the initial response would probably be something like, I just like people and I want them to feel cared for and I don't know why they don't like it. And the real interesting mm-hmm. answers would lay beyond that initial defensive response of, um, let's try to imagine it a little more. But yeah, I think, you know, you can absolutely be compassionate here. This sounds like a compulsion. Um, this absolutely mm-hmm. sounds uh, like it's inhibiting her ability to, um, you know, care for the relationships that matter the most to her. It's absolutely a problem. I'm sure it has a great deal more to do with uh, her own issues around, like, anxiety, discomfort, compulsion, relief, um, than whether or not she is a, is a good aunt or or cares about people. Um, so I think, you know, you can view this with compassion without thinking, um, all I have to do is just put up with it, I think. Um Mm-hmm. And, you know, I do, it's it's a little unclear to me, letter writer, whether or not your mother has asked you for help or whether or not you've just seen it and you're anxious and you want to fix that for your mom. That's a really good point. I would, you know, I, I think the first thing to say is, has my mom either asked me for help or does she seem receptive? Because I, I do think it's fine if you're talking to someone you're very close with and they're talking about a problem to say, you know is there anything that I can do to help or do you want to talk to me about it or may I offer a suggestion? That's totally fine. Um, But if she seems disinclined to take that advice, then I think it will be important for you to take a little distance here and just say, I can have sympathy for this. This is hard, but it's ultimately my mom's boundary to draw. And if she decides not to, I'm not going to draw it for her. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, And yeah, I I, I also want to make room for – um, like some possible scripts that the daughter could use it, in the event that her mom does um, want some ways to set these boundaries. Um, Great, because like she says, like she says, her mom is is very non confrontational. Which, um, and I, I agree with you, you um, when you say that just because someone isn't conf- isn't confrontational doesn't mean that. Um, or I'm sorry that just because someone is confrontational doesn't mean that they have to yell. Um, yeah. It's not necessarily the same thing, um so maybe maybe one one option um, sort of sort of more on like the harm reduction um, spectrum is like you know acknowledging that you know it's very it's very generous <laughs> of the sister in law to you know be such a giver, um but is there any way to possibly cut back or limit this to birthdays and holidays um, that might not resolve like the actual route. Um, I think Mm -hmm. that's really up to the sister-in-law to seek out the help that I think she needs. Um, But it might at least lessen the impact. Great. Let's hear them. Yeah. So, um, you know, I really appreciate one one, one thing to say could be, I really appreciate that, you know, you think of us and um, you're always trying to make us happy, uh, as you know, the family. But, uh, you know, it would be great if, you could maybe limit these special gifts to, you know, birthdays and holidays when it when it feels more meaningful. Um, so that's like kind of a nice way to put it. And then maybe like a nuclear option, <laughs> um, since she doesn't seem to be receptive to uh, firm boundaries or yelled boundaries, mm-hmm. um, could be, you know, I, I've asked you to stop and I need you to stop. I don't know why you're continuing to do this when i've been clear about
0: my needs it feels like you're not respecting me yeah and and that's a very gentle nuclear option i think which is (laughs) nice i think especially if you're dealing with somebody who's like hears that and thinks oh god if i actually said that to my pushy sister-in-law she would treat that as a as a nuclear option um and i think it's it's again this is very much up to your mom so like if your mom does experience a lot of discomfort around this but then also does not want to say anything please don't feel like it's then your job to help her figure out what she's going to do with all of that stuff like again not to say like suck it up mom um but you know if she decides that for her it's worth not saying anything for a very long time then the trade off that she makes in that is that she gets to decide what to do with all this shit she doesn't need so you know you, that doesn't mean that if your mom comes to you anxious about it that you have to kick her to the curb. But uh, I think it would be helpful to say, you know, I I think it would be better to talk to her. Um, But if you decide not to do that, you know, I hope you're able to find a junk removal system or a local uh, Goodwill if any of this stuff is donatable or some other solution to this. Um, But yeah, I I think the thing to really just stress when either your mother or if it ever happens to you to say to the sister-in-law is just, um, hey, you know, I don't need these things. Um, you know that I've asked you not to give me these things. So we're both clear that you're not doing this for me. You're doing it for yourself. Um, And I just need you to know that whatever you're trying to work out right now, I love you. I care about you. um, But uh, I don't have any room in my home to help you work out this particular dynamic. So anything that you send here is going to get sent back or thrown away immediately. Um, And, you know, that may go up to and including like contacting your uh, delivery people or USPS and just saying like, if anything's delivered to my house from this address, you know, you don't deliver it. I don't, I, actually, I have no idea if you can do that, but, um, you know, making it clear, like I'm not going to open it. I'm not going to look at it. It's going immediately into the trash. Um, and again, that would be more confrontational than not, but it's also a gentle thing to say. And I think just really clarifying, this has nothing to do with me. You are doing this for you. You have already done this for you uh, at the expense of some of your other relationships. And I really, really wish that you would stop and admit that to yourself.
1: Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah,
0: because it's just it's not about gifts. It's not about generosity. It's about compulsion. And that doesn't mean that she doesn't love you. And it doesn't mean that she doesn't want it to mean those things. But it doesn't. And her intentions don't suddenly make it generous. Um, And using other people to facilitate like a compulsive shopping habit is not, in fact, generous. It's just expensive and wasteful. And yeah, anytime she pushes back with get rid of something else, you, you know, all you need to say to that is, no, um, I'm not going to start throwing away the things that I bought for myself and like to make room uh, for things you decided to click on. Um, that is an unreasonable request. But yeah, this is just one of those things where it will have to become worth it to your mother to get a little bit confrontational. Um, and there's a big difference between screaming and saying, I don't want you to mail garbage to my house.
1: Yeah, th- I,
0: I agree. That's great. Great advice. It's, it's hard to think of like, you know, sometimes I get letters from people about dealing with members of the family who struggle with hoarding. And it's a little bit like externalized hoarding. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't actually know what the condition of her home is, but it's sort of like I need to fill the yeah. homes of people I love with stuff because that mm-hmm. makes me feel safe, comfortable. Um, like, I know that they're thinking of me. And and that's just, again, so clearly, like, I, I can imagine that that must be a painful and anxious mental um, state. Uh, so there's, again obvious room for compassion and sympathy and love there but it's not going to work and it's not working right like it actually drives people mm-hmm. away it does not make them feel loved um it requires you to not listen to people when they specifically tell you what they want which is like defeating the whole purpose of gift giving um and everything about it is just sad and hard and uh you know good luck to you and your mom your style needs an overhaul man that's funny <laughs> that is that's funny to bold me. it is it, right it gets bold real fast like, no, no no no. this is just for you oh by the way i think that your personal fashion style is garbage <laughs> all right so this next one is complicated i i think there's useful stuff that this letter writer can do but it's one of those situations where i wish that they'd written to me like three weeks ago or a year ago so the subject is offended colleague dear prudence I work at a small charity organization as one of only three paid staffers. Everyone else is a volunteer. The volunteers are great but can be judgmental. I was really happy when I got to know Emily, the other staff member who isn't our supervisor, and discovered that she is absolutely great and shares my discomfort with some of the things that the volunteers say. For example, about certain ethnic groups being better or worse at driving than others, or why do they put gay characters in children's cartoons nowadays. We don't have an HR department and have to be pretty much eternally grateful to volunteers just for being there. Emily's in a worse position than me because she's married to a woman. The volunteers aren't terrible to her, but they are weirdly quiet around her, and she has told me about feeling isolated. She said she was relieved when I started and introduced me and my boyfriend to her wife. We hung out a lot after work. But I've offended her, and I don't know what to do. Her wife recently dropped by work to bring her something that she'd forgotten, and I popped into the staffing area and said, Hey, your friend is here. Later, after Emily came back, she said, that's not my friend, that's my wife. You don't think I have a mortgage with my gal pal, do you? The volunteers who were around, who were the reason I think I felt uncomfortable in the first place, tittered, and I was really embarrassed and apologized. Emily shrugged and was cold with me for the rest of the day. It's now been over a week, and she has completely frozen our friendship. She doesn't pick up coffee for us in the morning anymore, canceled our usual drinks meetup, and is just coldly professional with me at work. I feel very isolated without anyone that I like to talk to at work anymore. I miss my friend, and I also feel like she's overreacting at this point. It was a stupid comment, but not something to end a friendship over. Am I totally wrong, or is she being dramatic about this?
1: Oh, goodness.
0: So first things first, this may not be immediately possible, but it would be great to look for a different job, like long-term working at a charity organization with three paid employees, one of whom is your boss, and an army of volunteers who say really dumb, inappropriate shit all day, but you have to, like, kiss ass because they're working for free and no HR department just sounds like a kind of miserable environment. And, like, regardless of this, I just don't think this is the kind of work. I think you can expect a lot more of stuff like this if you keep working here in the long run.
1: Yeah, I agree. The the work environment described here just, you know, like, I'm not a fan of using the word toxic, um, but when it comes to, like, work environments, I think uh, I think some of them qualify, and this sounds like a pretty Right. It's just a setup
0: for, you know, constant, constant stress. Like, it, it does not sound like a super well-run company. It sounds like there's some uh, really, like, just fundamentally shitty dynamics in terms of how the work gets divided, which is, like, there's an army of volunteers who we have to rely on for work that we probably should be paying somebody for, but rather than like pay a salary, we all just like grin and bear it while they say like racist stuff or like go on uh, homophobic rants about cartoons, which like, yeah, again, that just sounds like a company that is not deeply concerned with uh, the well-being of their employees. So there's just that. I'll, I'll start with that. Um, I think it can be hard if you're in a situation where, like, for Emily, right, like, she was never going to be friends with any of these volunteers. So there's not much that she can get away with in terms of pushback with them. But I I think without getting into whether or not I think she's overreacting, it it does make sense to me that given that you were the one friend she had in the workplace, feeling like you had let her down um, and, and were ashamed of her, like, relationship, hurt worse than the the way that she's treated by other people in the office. So I understand why it feels big to her, because it was like the one person I thought had my back at work, you know, as soon as we were in front of a couple of homophobic volunteers, called my wife my friend. So... Um, yeah, I, I I do understand why she feels more hurt at you than she does at the people who are shitty to her on a daily basis because she trusted you more. Um, and and sometimes you know when we know uh, if I push back against this group of people, I'm not going to get anything, but this other person at least supposedly cares about me. So I, it makes sense to me why she's more distant towards you than towards them. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, that was that was my initial read of this too. Is that you know the the letter writer is pretty much the only person that Emily can trust. Um, and, you know, for, for the letter writer to, you know, whether it was intentional or not, to let her down in this way um, and sort of sort of play into this, uh, you know, this long history of, of erasing or denigrating lesbian uh, relationships and marriages, like, that, that had to be incredibly hurtful. Um, for Emily, um, and you know, taking taking sort of sort of a even a, a charitable outlook on the letter writer's motivations for saying what they did, um, there there's there's one way to interpret it where like the letter writer was trying to protect Emily, you know, by masking the fact that she had a wife, which is still still shitty, you know. But even with that charitable perspective. Uh, the letter writer's intentions, you know, it's not the letter writer's responsibility um, as Emily had, you know, probably not asked her to, like, keep her marital status in the closet. Um, and if she wanted... To, or, or I'm sorry, I don't know if the letter writer's... I don't know their gender.
0: I think because the letter writer mentions having a boyfriend and I think if the letter writer weren't straight or cis, they would have mentioned that as a relevant part of the letter.
1: True. Okay. Yeah, so, yeah, so the, the letter writer, if, if they really wanted to... Um, you know, protect Emily, which again, is still weird and uncalled for, um, they could have just said the wife's name, you know, I don't know, I'm really not sure why they chose to, to use the term your friend. Um, yeah, I think that's the key. And, and, and yeah, and I, I'd like, I'd really encourage the letter writer to, um, you know, reflect on reflect on why you Said it this way um, and try, you know, really try to see it from Emily's perspective, like how just how profoundly hurtful and, um, you know, how much of kind of a betrayal um, this was for her.
0: Yeah, I, I think that that's really the key because, you know, the letter writer, I think your instincts, letter writer, are right on the money here. You say the volunteers were around. I think they were the reason I felt uncomfortable. I think you're right. I think that's why. I think in that moment you were uncomfortable for a couple of reasons. And and some of it did have to do with wanting to um, protect Emily from potential discomfort. But um, some of it was also about protecting you from potential discomfort, I think, and that you prioritized that over um you know just uncomplicatedly referring to her wife as her wife that's why like i I think in order to offer a really meaningful apology it can be important to identify what was i really trying to do rather than what do i wish i was trying to do um and i think you know if you were to give it a little bit more time and to just do like one brief follow-up um Maybe outside of work, maybe over email, maybe reflect a little bit on how you think it might be best to say that. But just to say, I just wanted to acknowledge again, um, I'm really sorry that I did that. Um, I shouldn't have done it. I prioritized our homophobic volunteers um, over you and your relationship. And that was really um, dehumanizing and unkind of me. And I'm really, really sorry. Um, I think that that can sometimes be helpful if all you had said, kind of in the moment, was, I'm really sorry it can sometimes be helpful to say, I think I've identified um, just what I did that was wrong and why it was so wrong, and I want you to know that I know it and I'm committed to not doing it again. Um, And that's not because I think that will automatically get Emily back on your kind of friendship side, but I do think that it will be a more meaningful apology. Um, If outside of that, she just still wants nothing to do with you other than being uh, strictly professional, you know, whether or not you think that that's reasonable you know, I I have some sympathy for for Emily's position, which is like she works in a very, very hostile and homophobic work environment. So it may just be that she has to have up defenses that you don't. So what looks like a dramatic or an overreaction response to you, uh, you know, you have to remember, you go to work every day with homophobic volunteers that you disapprove of because you think homophobia is bad. But she goes to work every day with homophobic volunteers um, who think that, her relationship and her sexuality is bad so she's under a different kind of pressure than you're under and um I, I would just say that if if she responds to something in a way that's different for you, it's because she's operating under a different set of contexts
1: yeah, absolutely um, that that's absolutely right uh, I, I I agree you know the letter writer can you know try maybe sending a note of apology like a sincere um. You know, apology noting what what she did, why why it was wrong, acknowledging why, um, you know, why it's why it was hurtful, but then then back off. You know, um, you know, M- Emily Emily's right to be angry, hurt, and distrustful of Lutterer at this point. Um, and and at any point, if you if you do somehow um, salvage this friendship. Uh, Don't ever mention to Emily that you thought she was overreacting uh, ever under any circumstances.
0: Yeah, I think that key there is that line about the volunteers aren't terrible to her, but they are weirdly quiet around her. I think maybe you have been in this environment um, a long enough time that it started to kind of warp your ideas of what's normal or what's appropriate at work. Um, and I do understand that sometimes when you have no option but to keep going at your job, you have to normalize it a little bit to preserve your own sanity. But I just really want to stress like working in an office with very few employees and an army of like volunteers who apparently have enough free time to like jabber on about why they hate gay cartoon characters um, actually sounds terrible to me. That actually does sound pretty nightmarish and unpleasant. Um, So, you know, trying to qualify, like, I don't think they're terrible to her because they're not, like, you know, slashing her tires or, like, writing homophobic slurs on her laptop screen um, doesn't mean that it's not actually pretty terrible and pretty stressful every single day. Um, and, again, it, it might just be, regardless of whether or not you and Emily are able to kind of salvage this friendship, I, I just think that if you can find a, a, a job with... Um, some some stricter rules about what is appropriate to talk about in the workplace and what isn't. Um, and with maybe an actual HR department or at least kind of a, a mutually agreed upon set of standards for what constitutes professional workplace behavior, um, that might be better for you in the long run. But yeah, so I would say don't worry about um, whether or not you think that this is an overreaction or not. Um, if you apologize again and she just leaves it at that, that it is what it is. Um, and don't assume that you know what it feels like for her to go to this workplace every day just because you're in the same workplace, because you are in the same workplace but not coming from the same place. Yeah, so I, I just think that that's it. I think that's the limit of, of what you can do at this point, point. and I'm sorry it does sound really unpleasant, but again, I just think you're putting more pressure on Emily, at least in your own mind, because she's kind of the one thing that makes work bearable for you, and I think that that's clearly been hard for her in a number of ways. So I would just say if Emily's the only reason you're able to get through the day at work and now you don't have Emily in the way that you used to, the solution is not start pushing back at Emily, but the solution is, you know, dust up the resume, go on the job hunt. Yeah. And also just one last thing, in the future, if and when the volunteers are like, getting really out of line talking about stuff. I get that you have to be like polite to them and, you know, do some ego coddling to keep them volunteering. You, that also doesn't mean you just have to put up with anything. You can absolutely say, um, I don't think this is an appropriate conversation for work. Can we talk about something else? Um, or even I really disagree or even I think that that's racist. Like,
1: that's a really good point. Yeah, like it's it's almost it's almost like they're the, the paid workers are being held hostage by the benevolence, the, the presumed benevolence of uh-huh. these volunteers.
0: Yeah, it's uh, uh, it's not a great workplace. It does not sound uh, like a delightful place. So um, good luck. OK, this next one is all you. And I'm so glad because I don't know that I'd be able to get through <laughs> it without my eyebrows leaving my forehead and oh my moving gosh. permanently to the ceiling.
1: All right. Subject line Embarrassed Mom. Dear Prudence, I am the mother of a 30 something male who has nine children aged five years to three months by seven different mothers. He was raised in a Christian home with good values. He is not afraid of work and participates in the children's lives, but he does not support his children and does not acknowledge two of them, even though we know they are his via DNA. He dropped out of school but has a GED. All of his seven other siblings are married, college-educated, and have very good jobs. I am also college-educated and have been married for over 20 years to their stepfather after their father died. Am I obligated to assist these mothers financially? They are all adults ranging from 25 to 35 years old, know of all the others, and still chose to have a child by him. Two have two children by him. Also, they have decided to make sure the children see each other as siblings— And they gather together often in social settings and also blast my son on social media, even though it takes two. Which is so embarrassing to me and my family. After raising one of my grandchildren from a toddler to teen, they moved back with a parent in the service a few years ago. I do not want to be a a built-in babysitter or bank. I'm in my 60s now. How can I help my son? And how do I handle this mess? Oh.
0: So... I want to start with the good thing, which is, like, and I don't mean this flippantly, if you raised seven kids and seven of them turned out just, like, responsible, stable, happily married, doing great, that is an excellent track record. Uh,
1: That's a really... (laughs)
0: Like, congratulations on seven great kids.
1: Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, I I could not find that... uh... That silver lining, but I'm glad that you did.
0: (laughs) I mean, I I think it's like I I think it's just frankly important to acknowledge like kids don't always grow up um, on an like you can't turn them out like an assembly line. You can often do lots of things very, very well and still have, you know, a human person who has free will and their own particular instincts and desires um, that don't necessarily come directly from you and make their own choices. And I think that that will be a helpful thing to bear in mind as you figure out to what extent you can be helpful to the mothers of your various grandchildren because you just, um, uh, you know... To a certain degree, you have to accept that your son is in his 30s and he makes choices that are not necessarily a direct reflection on how you raised him. Um, it's just part of the nature of raising human beings. They become human beings and, and adults make all kinds of decisions for all number of reasons that are not always directly like tied to what their parents did or didn't do.
1: Right, right. And I, uh, I'm i getting the sense, literator, that there is, a lot, um, th- there is a lot of, you know, Investment and in how how his behavior is a reflection on his upbringing, um, and you know I don't I don't have kids so you know there's there's only so much I can really understand but you know, I I do I, 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 I understand that you know um, and it and generally it seems like there there are two issues at heart here you know um, are you obligated to help the mothers of your grandchildren financially and how do you deal with the social media embarrassment um, or, you know, blasting uh, blasting your son and the embarrassment that that brings you. Um, I'd be curious, I don't know, maybe it's not super consequential, but I'd be curious to know what exactly is being said about your son on social media that makes it easy to internalize his behavior and, like, makes it feel like a reflection on his upbringing you know, unless unless the unless the you know the mothers are saying, oh, oh, he's, you know, he's a piece of shit dad, and it's definitely because of how his parents raised him. I'm not really sure how um, productive it productive it is to link that back to you. Does that yeah, make sense? I
0: think. Oh, I, I think absolutely. The social media part feels like the first and easiest and most immediate thing to handle, which is just. You know, I get that if this is one of the primary ways you stay in touch with your grandchildren, that unfriending them might not be an option or blocking them might not be an option that you want to pursue. Um, but you can mute the hell out of it and then only go check on the kids photos, um, you know, once a week or something like or or setting up like a text thread where you can communicate about the kids like there's absolutely ways to put barriers up between yourself and posts that these various women may choose to make or not make about the father of their children. So I, I would just say as hard as that might feel and as like non-intuitive as it might feel um, to just say other people get to have opinions about my son as a partner or a co-parent uh, that have, frankly, nothing to do with me, e- even though it feels like he's my son, he's my responsibility, this is our family name, um, to, to really, really draw that boundary of just like, I can't intervene here. I can't tell people what to say or not say about him on social media. This will be a waste of my time and energy to try to monitor. Um, so I'm going to go out of my way to create strategies that minimize how much I have to see that kind of thing. Um, if somebody wants to come to me directly, I can either say, you need to talk to him about this or thank you for sharing this with me. Let me help you brainstorm solutions. But um, just in terms of like constant sun reputation, investigation and management, you need to close up that detective agency. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, so once you've handled that, I think that will, it, the rest of it will feel a little bit easier to deal with because you will be operating less out of a panicked sense of time for me to make up for the fact that my son is uh, in many ways an imperfect father.
1: Yeah. And it's and it and it does sound like it, at the very least that um, that the letter writer is willing to be honest about that fact about her son, which which is kind of refreshing. Um, you know, she's in turn, you know, in turns. Um, protective of of her son, it seems, but also holds a realistic view of his, um, you know, shortfalls as a father.
0: Yeah, and I'll just say, too, like, that whole bit about, like, they blast my son on social media, even though it takes two. Um, again, I don't know these women. They may all be very different from one another. Some of them may be very difficult and unpleasant. Um, I, I'm absolutely, you know, ready to admit that that may very well be the case. Um That said, there is a big difference between being a lot and choosing not to financially support a child that you know is yours. So I I would, I would, again, I I understand the defensiveness. He's your son. Um, But the whole it takes two thing, you know, if the other half of the two in question is raising the child and supporting it and the half that's your son isn't, it doesn't really take two. It's not taking two. You know what I mean? Like one's doing the work of two. They frankly, um, I think, have very good reason to be angry with your son. Um, So again, I think kind of a combination here of social media blinders. Put some of those on, um, except that you cannot um, make up for your son's shortcomings. Um, Certainly, I would encourage him to acknowledge the children that he does have. But but yeah, also like he might just keep having a lot of children and being a shitty dad and only acknowledging some of them or when he feels like it. That would be really sad and harmful. Um, I hope he doesn't keep doing that. But um, you, can't, you can't follow him around with a broom your whole life. So in terms of the kids you do know about and who are a part of your life, um, if you need to say, I'm not going to be available to help raise anybody, I think that that is understandable. Just because you're his mom doesn't mean that you have to be Uh, You may want to look into a couple of like 529s, which are sometimes like relatively low input ways to provide for potential college educations someday um, that uh, are actually pretty easy to start and pretty beneficial, but you may not have the money or the time to start one for everybody and you know, that is a, a series of weighted decisions that you'll have to make. And it might be helpful to talk them over with a couple of people that you trust so that you can think about how can I be as helpful as I can to my grandchildren without um, like sacrificing my own retirement or my own financial stability and decide where I need to draw the line. It is fine for you to draw a line and say, I can't do last minute babysitting. I'm nearing retirement age. I just raised another grandchild. Uh, I, I'm not available to do more. You're allowed to do that.
1: Yeah, totally, totally. And another thing I'm, I'm curious about is uh, the letter writer's relationship with the mothers of her grandchildren. Um, it, it wasn't really clear to me, unless I missed something in the letter, um, like how, how extensive her involvement is in both the grandchildren's lives and in the, the mother's lives. Um, and have the mothers of, of these kids, like, ever indicated that they would welcome her help? Um, given, I, I don't know. I, I I just got a sense that there's some judgment <laughs> on the on the letter yeah. writer's part. I think toward, that's absolutely fair to say. The moms. Yeah, and I could totally understand why. I could totally understand if, if you know, the moms just didn't really want that much interaction with her.
0: Mm-hmm. so yeah,
1: she, in in some ways, she might be overstepping by, um, trying to. I don't know, help help in some way unless yeah. it's been requested or is welcomed.
0: So I, I agree. I think the most important thing to do is just figure out what am I prepared to offer financially. It may not be very much, fine. Have that number in mind. Um, be prepared to say I'm not available to babysit. If somebody asks you and if nobody asks you, great, your problem is solved. Um, I, yeah, I think especially that bit about they've decided to make sure the children see each other as siblings. They often gather together in social settings. And I, again, I would just say like, these women are all struggling with raising children that your son has decided for the most part to not support. Um, Participating in your children's lives is not the same thing as raising them, nor is it supporting them, which you've also acknowledged he doesn't do. So frankly, I just don't think that you need to question the manner in which they choose to raise your grandchildren, given that your son's not participating fully. You know, like if they decide to get together and bond and blast him on social media, Certainly, I can imagine reasons why that would be hard for the kids. There's probably reasons why if any of them wrote to me, I would encourage them to find other like pressure relief valves. But basically, I would just say like they're the ones doing the work if this is what they need um, to get through it. And your son has not said, yeah, I'm going to step up and start paying seven different forms of child support or I guess five because a couple of them um, have had more than one of his kids. Um, It's not really your place to criticize or manage. That's that's the you got to step back there. And, you know, it's hard, I think, to parse when you're dealing both with embarrassment and also I would imagine some just sadness. Like, sure, there's the embarrassment of he has a big, messy number of, like, partners of his children in a way that looks embarrassing to other people. And, you know, I just, there's a limit to how much energy I would encourage you to spend on that. But the part of it that would be really hard is this idea of, like, um... You know, he treats his own children very, very casually and sometimes ignores them completely. And that's heartbreaking, um, you know, that he has abandoned some of his children um, and that the ones that he hasn't abandoned, he kind of, it sounds like, thinks of as like distant cousins that he can like stop by and hang out with every once in a while. Um, that's really sad. He's choosing to, to fail to be a father to those kids. Um, and that hurts. That's sad. Um, And that's a lot worse than like the embarrassing thing of like, oh, my son has a lot of sex like that. I just okay, yeah. make sure you're embarrassed about the right things and also don't feel like your embarrassment means that you have to fix everything. Switching from embarrassed mothers to mothers who should be embarrassed. uh, The subject of this next letter is mother-in-law lacks social media boundaries. This is just a classic. This is just a good old fashioned, you know, Sunday dinner embarrassing mother-in-law story it's great it's what keeps the internet going dear prudence i recently gave birth to a beautiful baby girl sometime afterwards i found that to my horror my mother-in-law had not only announced on facebook that i was in labor she posted a picture of me looking half dead with my minutes old newborn i think it's highly inappropriate to announce someone else's birth on facebook and to post a picture of them without asking I didn't use an epidural, forgot to breathe during labor, and popped a lot of capillaries. I hadn't even had the chance to tell my own friends and some family members. This was a private moment, and I don't want the 300-plus people that have now liked and shared this photo seeing me in such a state. Now they're badgering me about making an official Facebook announcement because my husband asked them to not post any more pictures. I'm so mad at my mother-in-law that I unfriended her and haven't spoken to her.
1: Oh my gosh, I'm so mad. So far you're
0: doing everything right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's horrible. I'm that so
1: mad at your mother in
0: law. <laughs> yeah. I just, a- a- everybody knows that that's not on.
1: Yeah. I'm also mad at the 300 plus people who liked and shared this without making sure that the subject of the photo was okay with it, to be honest.
0: I can also just imagine, you know, I'm sure lots of those people are just her friends and don't know you. And I'm sure that lots of them were like, obviously she wouldn't post it without checking in with the mother beforehand. So I'm sure I'm obviously just seeing the third or fourth like family announcement. And just because I myself am not friends with the mother and father in question, that's why I'm seeing this one. Like, I bet a lot of people don't even realize that she like took a creep shot of you passed out and Covered in broken blood vessels Mm. uh, because Mm -hmm. they just were like, no one would do that. But she did it. She did do it. She
1: did. She's the one who would do that.
0: Yeah. This one feels really straightforward to me. Like, be mad at your mother-in-law. Keep being mad at her. Continue to not be friends with her on Facebook. Um, and, and, And really, it sounds like your husband has already asked people not to post more pictures. So I would just say you just gave birth and burst a lot of blood vessels, he gets to handle this one. Just say, like, it was really, really not okay, and I need you to communicate to your mother that she needs to take the post down, um, and, uh, you know, from now on, we're going to be really careful about, like, what she does with her camera if we're going to spend time together, because that's a pretty big violation of trust and intimacy, and um, you owe my wife an apology, and you need to not do it again.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that that was the first, the first thing that, that came to mind was, you know, what has the husband said to his to his mother? Um, you know, not not that I believe that it's always the spouse's responsibility to like mediate all conflict between the spouse and their parents, um, but at least like in, in a situation like this where you know, the <laughs> yeah, it is where it's such a such a huge huge violation of of privacy. Um, yeah, this one's on this one's on the husband um, to at least run interference um, and act like he has some stake in this too. Um, yeah, I just, it, this is just unbelievably inappropriate. Um, and I'm so sorry, letter writer, that this happened to you. I, you know, congratulations on your baby, but also <laughs> I'm sorry <laughs> that uh, that your mother-in-law did this.
0: I think it's also, yeah. I, and there's lots of situations in which I think both Parties need to talk to a set of in-laws about something, and it's not always like just a, an across-the-board rule. But I do think in this case, he needs to do the majority of the work, and it, that also, though, doesn't mean that um, you can't follow up. Like if you're if you're finding yourself just like I need to make sure that she like makes eye contact with me and commits not to doing it again and understands that I'm gonna be putting up some more boundaries on her behalf because she doesn't choose to exercise reasonable boundaries on her own. You can totally do that. You are absolutely allowed to do that. Um, but in terms of like just doing the immediate interference because you should be like, you know, resting and doing fun things because you just did a very difficult and exhausting thing, like this should be a chore your husband handles primarily. Um, And my hope, especially since he's already done a little of the work, my hope and my guess is that he will leap at the opportunity to do something useful. Because oftentimes, uh, you know, when your partner is the one giving birth, there's a sense of like, well, what can I do? And this is something concrete for him to do.
1: Yes. Yes. Absolutely. And
0: it's not an argument. It's not, hey, we want to get into a back and forth about whether or not it was okay. It's just, hey, this was incredibly fucked up. You need to never do it again. If you can't commit to that, we will make sure you never do it again by limiting your uh, time with us and the kids. And we hope you don't make that choice. That's it.
1: What, one one more thing about, about this one. Um, the, the bit where they're badgering me about making an official Facebook announcement. Um, is this like the royal family or something? Like people don't get to demand that
0: of yeah. new parents. Yeah, they just get to hear, <laughs> I'll do it when I'm not exhausted. Uh, I'm yeah. busy. Yeah. I get it. Everybody wants to see the baby, uh, but, you know, parents are people, too, and you can't just, like, make demands on them because babies are cute. You will get to see – everyone will get to see pictures of the baby. Um, the story oh, does yeah. not end with, and no one saw the baby until they were 18. <laughs> like, there's going to be <laughs> pictures. You're going to be fine. So, this next letter. Um, oh, Yes. Is one that I actually wanted to do a redo on because the first time that I read it, I was just so miffed um, that I I focused only on the things that I thought were bad. Um, And I want to take another crack at it because I think that there's stuff in here that is also legitimate and understandable, but it's um, it needs to be seriously and significantly redirected. So with all that said, the subject is wife avoids me when I'm sick. Dear Prudence. Whenever I get a cold, my wife minimizes the amount she touches me. We don't kiss, we don't have sex, and she sleeps on the opposite side of the bed until I'm feeling better. My wife is the CEO of a small startup, so when she gets sick, her entire operation will grind to a halt until she's better. She also has a pretty weak immune system. A cold that has me in bed for three days will knock her out for a week or more. But her avoidance makes me feel like I'm in an isolation ward. Sometimes when I get sick, I just wish she'd rub my back and stroke my hair. Plus, half of the time she gets sick anyway, despite avoiding contact with me. Would I be wrong to ask her to reconsider her no kissing while sick policy?
1: So should we get the, the charitable part out of the way?
0: <laughs> I, I think mostly just what I want to say is it is so understandable when you are sick to want a partner to comfort you. That's not unreasonable. I don't want to say, like, you just need to suck it up and walk it off. Um It is totally, totally reasonable and appropriate when you are sick to say, like, I need to rest. I would love for my partner to help take care of me. And, you know, that is totally, totally cool. I challenge the idea that she avoids you. Um, I actually don't think she avoids you. And I think that the bit at the end that really bothers me is she gets sick half the time anyway. So, and the implication there is like, so if that number goes up to 80 or 90 or even 100%, it's not a big deal. That is a big deal. Like asking someone to do things that significantly increase the odds that they will pick up what you have because already half the time they get sick anyways is really callous. And so that's what worries me here is that it seems to be like, it doesn't really matter if she gets sick or not, a bunch more Um, As long as I get um, this particular form of comfort exactly when I want it. Because, again, like she sleeps on the other side of the bed. Like that's a normal place to sleep. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. And again, some couples are all night cuddlers and that's totally fine if you're both cool with that. But it's not like she's sleeping in the other room or checking into a hotel. She's just sleeping on her side of the bed. Right? Like don't most people who share beds you, you can't sleep on top of each other.
1: Yeah. Um and and, and with and it, with that, like I'm I'm imagining like that she just keeps like a huge distance. Like maybe maybe they have a California king or something and like you know, she just stays on like way off to the other side. But yeah, totally. Um honestly, you know, I feel like letter writer, you're kinda lucky that you're not banished to the couch when when you're sick right um, and even like i
0: wouldn't even use the language banish like i think it's actually really reasonable for couples especially if one person gets sick really easily to take reasonable precautions of like no kissing like and who you know who wants to have sex when you've got the flu anyways like the flu is pretty debilitating like i don't know um I, i think her limits her physical limits when you get sick are really reasonable um if she were like putting on gloves to touch you or you know, um, being cold or uh, ignoring you—that would be really different. But I don't see that here. Um, so I think when you're sick, if you want comfort, I get it. Um, but save the back rubs for a couple of days when you're not contagious, and say, you know, I would love a cup of tea, or would you mind bringing me the Dayquil, or you know, um, some form hot of bath or something. Yeah, or even just sit and talk to me from the couch, you know, like just some form of contact, some form of comfort that still feels a little bit like soothing and like you're being cared for, which, of course, is OK. Um, but saying, hey, have, you know, make out with me while I have a cold, even though that seems like a pretty guaranteed way to pick it up yourself and then be in bed yourself for a week. That's too much to ask. That's not OK.
1: Yeah, yeah, agreed. It it, it sounds like it really sounds like the uh, letter writer is prioritizing. Yeah. Um, his need for comfort, his very understandable need for comfort. Um, But there's a lot of ways to receive comfort, you know,
0: like her health. Yeah. 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 That's I think that's where you can always draw the line. If there's ever a question of like, am I asking too much or not enough? um, And am I also taking care of my partner in my own way? I think that's the important line to draw is what is what I'm asking for something that would significantly increase her chances of getting sick. And if I can get it in two days, then then that to me says, okay, you need to put that off and ask for comfort in another form. It doesn't mean just like throw yourself in a corner and and treat yourself badly for three days until you are worth comforting again. It just means limiting physical stuff until you're not actively contagious is a good idea. And I would also just I hope that when she does get sick, because it sounds like when she gets sick, it, it really knocks her out. I hope that you um, are really there for her and that you take good care of her.
1: Yeah, I hope I hope that too. I hope that, it, uh, you know, the treatment that he is wanting uh, is treatment that he is more than willing, like way more than willing to give to her mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. when
0: she's sick. Yeah. And again, it's totally fine if you're like, if you sometimes when you get sick, if you want to like be a little bit like vulnerable or even kind of like whiny, I get it. I I often understand that when people feel sick, they kind of want to be babied a little bit. And I don't think you have to squash that impulse in yourself. You just have to be careful about how you acknowledge it. So like if you wanted to say, oh, I I feel a little self-conscious about this, but I feel sick and down on myself and isolated. And I just, you know, Uh, tell me you love me, tell me, tell me that I'm going to be better soon. You know, like name the thing that's hurting, which is like, there's a part of me that wants to be babied and wants to be demanding, um, without judgment. And then also say, can you help me with that in a way that does not mean you're going to get sick, uh, by doing it?
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: I've totally, I've totally (laughs) had times in my relationship where I'm sick and I'm just like, Can I have five minutes to just whine about how much I hate being sick? And my partner will either be like, no, I have stuff to do or like, yes, absolutely. Let's like whine about how much it sucks. And, you know, she's not like trying to fix it or anything. I'm just like, I hate being sick. I feel like a piece of toast. And she's like, do you feel better? I'm like, a little bit. Can I have tea? And like, that's, you know what I mean? Like, that's it. You can name these things without letting them drive the car, if that makes sense. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, totally. You can name your emotions without putting them in the driver's seat.
1: (laughs) I want to get that tattooed somewhere. (laughs)
0: I I don't know. I don't know. I feel like maybe just write it down more than a tattoo. I don't know that you need to inscribe (laughs) it on your body. But I do think sometimes we have trouble with that, right? Like it, it feels like, okay the only way I know how to respond to an emotion or a need is deny it or put it in the driver's seat. Either it is what's driving my behavior or I smash it out. And there are passenger seats for that sort of thing so that you can say, here is this feeling that I have. Some of it is totally reasonable and understandable. Some of it is demanding and unreasonable. I will name it. I will acknowledge it. I will own it. And I will let some of it go and retain the rest.
1: I, I hope I hope the letter, I hope the letter writer um, takes that into account.
0: Yeah, I do too. And I'm glad For I sure. took this the second <laughs> time around because I think the first time it was just um, I was relitigating some past relationships I've had and bringing that to the table and like I don't think that this is one of um, the people that I had in mind. So I don't need to bring that to bear here. All right. All right. Let's get out of here. We, we addressed that one more than enough. I rambled a lot. So you get to take this next letter and I will let you start the answer and take a seat.
1: All right. Subject is Moreau's middle manager. Dear Prudence, I left the stressful life of fine dining behind me to be a middle manager with health insurance at a corporate deli. I've settled into this role and become a source of knowledge for my employees, many of whom are interested in more intricate cooking techniques. I love my job and the people I work with, and teaching people about food delights me. My issue lies in social boundaries. Working in restaurants, my coworkers and I would sit at the bar after our shift, often with our bosses, get drunk, and get into some pretty inappropriate conversations. Now, when my coworkers invite me out for a drink or offer, to- offer me a ride home, I politely decline. I don't know how to navigate these relationships in a corporate setting. I've never had an HR department before, nonetheless been in a position where I manage so many people. But it's still a kitchen culture, and as far as companies go, ours is pretty laid back and progressive. There aren't any specific rules against fraternization, but I stress out about the boss-employee dynamic. My co-workers hang out with some employees outside of work, or I'm sorry, my co-managers hang out with some employees outside of work, but they were promoted from within whereas I was an outside hire, and they have more of a peer relationship. I also hold some socialist beliefs that your boss is not your friend, your job is not your family. I would be mortified if someone felt I was abusing my power to worm my way into the staff social circle. On the other hand, I isolated myself from many friendships after a mental breakdown years ago, and I'm feeling starved of platonic contact. Meeting people outside of work has been difficult, and nowadays I exclusively hang out at home with my partner. I've overheard conversations where people have worried that I don't like them, when that couldn't be farther from the truth. Is it okay to have a friendly after-work cocktail with your employees, or am I right to keep everyone at arm's length? So I, my my initial impression um, reading this letter is, you know, I appreciate how thoughtful the letter writer um, is about this, and, you know, wanting to respect boundaries and maintain boundaries, and um, foster an appropriate manager-employee relationship. Um, I also totally agree with, uh, you know, your boss is not your friend. Your job is not your family.
0: Um, I did love, and, though, like, uh, <laughs> if it's a socialist belief, that is the mildest of the socialist beliefs. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it kind of makes it sound like if you were to go and read, like, Capital, it would be like, just set firm boundaries and go home at the end of your shift. And like, that's not, I agree that it's a, it's a generally good principle, but I don't know that I would go so far right. as to call that a socialist sentiment. Social,
1: Yeah, I agree. I agree. But it's, it's, it's sweet that, you know, that that's how <laughs> literary is characterized.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, again, I'm not a socialism expert.
1: Yeah. So, so like my first question is, you know, um, do you, how do you interact with your employees at work you know are you do you come off as warm and like at least a little interested in their lives you know um i do i do totally understand the the in, the instinct to um you know want to have a a friendly relationship with your with your coworkers even if you're not considered friends um And I I don't necessarily think that you have to, you know, go to happy hours or or drink with them in order to achieve that. Um, But, you know, maybe there are some other ways um, to connect with your team, Um, you know, like a quick coffee break during the day, if if possible. I mean, I know, you know, I know the restaurant industry is like, you know, maybe too busy for that. Um, But... You know, other things besides, uh, you know, after after work cocktails, where um, conversation topics can potentially become inappropriate or uncomfortable for you. Um, there's also, you know, there's also the possibility that you know that these these folks that you're working with don't necessarily have the the same um, expectations that. Your you know that you've gotten used to in the restaurant industry industry, um, you can always like just go to go to one, um, go get drinks with them once and you know read the room, and if they start if the conversation veers toward you know topics that are inappropriate for work you can always leave, um, like politely and you know say like hey you know I gotta get going I'll see you all tomorrow, um, at least then they'll you know they'll know that we'll get the sense that you do enjoy being you know being around them you do enjoy enjoy their company but um you know maybe you don't need to stick around for those kind of
0: topics yeah it is tricky cuz as you say like uh, restaurant kitchen culture is very very different from corporate culture and so what's and, and that's without even getting into like ways in which kitchen culture can be really fucked up Uh, which is and so it's part of it what sounds like is the letter writers like i know how to be in a work environment where there are no rules and you get wasted with your boss like on the regular um and everybody is like hooking up with everybody else and fighting and saying crazy shit and um parts of that were really fun and parts of that were really bad and i don't know how to do uh um i know how to like just keep my balance do my job um, not really talk to my coworkers after work. That's not really the culture here, and it's not exactly what I want here. But I, I don't know how to do a little bit, um, unless it's like no rules, everybody does whatever they want. We're just all pals.
1: Yeah, yeah, that that's the sense I got too. And it's and it's interesting that um, the letter writer sees such a huge chasm between, or I guess like a you know a solid binary I guess between um, totally raucous, lewd conversations and the ways of interacting with your coworkers, and then, like, all business, no personal connections, no warmth, nothing. Um, I would encourage, whatever, I would encourage you to um, try to find a middle ground. And it, not to say that it'll be easy, um, but, you know, what are some ways that you think you could um, signal that you, you know, you do care about your employees, you know, in, insofar as, like, a boss can care about employees. Right, right. Um, and it doesn't it doesn't and, sound
0: like the letter writer's being, like, rude or brusque at work.
1: Right. It sounds like right.
0: things are pretty good during the day, and they're just kind of confused that you're not doing the thing that the other managers have historically done, um, and mm-hmm. they're reading into that potentially not being liked. I, I To me, I think the really important thing to separate out is that last bit which is that meeting people outside of work has been hard, I exclusively hang out at home with my partner, um, and I, I'm starved for platonic contact. Um, because that to me, if, if you bring a lot of that energy into like, okay, I'm going to start like just, you know, once a month, either saying to my team, like, let's all go out um, for a drink tonight, you know, and this will be out with the boss evening, I'm not going to start inviting myself like to every event that they go to, but I am going to occasionally um, spend an hour together with them after work. I, I do think that that would be an appropriate um, middle ground. But I think if you're looking to this for addressing the part of you that feels isolated and starved, that is too much energy to be bringing to after work drinks with your employees. Um, and, and I would say, um, you know, there's a number of kind of different ways people in adulthood deal with feeling like I don't have a lot of friends right now. Um, some of that might look like trying to get in touch with older friends who might l- not live nearby and reconnecting. Um, some of it might have to do with like you and your partner might talk about ways that as a couple, you can try to invite more of maybe your partner's friends over so you can get to know them a little better, um, to maybe occasionally like schedule, uh, some out of the house activity where you can kind of go and try to talk to other people, um, figure out ways that don't just involve, work to address some of that. Up to and including, you know, now that you've got all this great shiny health insurance, seeing a therapist, um, which can sometimes feel like, oh, I don't really need a therapist. I don't have a huge problem. Um, and and I would encourage you not to think of as a therapist as only someone you go see when things are a mess, when you just want to talk a little bit about how do I deal with some of my loneliness and isolation? And how do I look for new friends? And how do I process my feelings? Um, I think that can be really, really helpful. So Again, none of that is a replacement for the problem that you're trying to face right now. But I just think this is um, if you're at the level of feeling starved for for platonic contact, I want you to be able to address that from multiple angles rather than say, maybe I'll just become really good friends with a lot of my colleagues and that will solve it. Because that I think would take you further into um, a non professional association with them than you sound like you want to have. I mean, like, there's that conflict, right? Like, part of me would love to just be pals with everybody, but I also think that there's a number of reasons why it's not a good idea to become best friends with your manager.
1: Yeah, yeah, totally, I totally agree with that. Um, yeah, that, that's a, and you make a really good point um, about addressing the, uh, the the issue of loneliness. Um, yeah, it, and I I don't know, letter writer, like what what your bandwidth is like now that you're. Um, that you're a middle manager uh, in like a corporate, more of a corporate setting, um, but maybe, maybe in this maybe like less stressful um, job, you'll have the time to actually uh, devote energy to f- to seeking friendship and connections from other from other angles, as Danny said, because um, I, I know, at least like speaking from personal experience, um, you know, it's it's really difficult to put energy into making or even retaining connections with, uh, with friend groups when you are working a very stressful job that takes up all of your, your available time. Um, And and so in those situations, it's easy to like, to um, cultivate sometimes really deep friendships with your, with your colleagues, Um, maybe not your managers, but your colleagues for sure. And, um, you know, if, If you're in a slightly less intense work environment, then I hope that I hope that that means that you also have a little bit more bandwidth to seek out friendships elsewhere and not have to rely on your work environment to provide that for you. Yeah.
0: And I would just wrap it up by saying, I think that um, especially given that you kind of have the um, built in structure of like, I like to talk about more intricate cooking techniques to again. Once a month, taking them up on an offer of joining them for drinks, staying for an hour and then going home and kind of talking a little bit more about the thing that interests you and that they want to learn. Um, so that there's kind of an uh, informal mentoring basis, again, not to turn it into more work, but like so that you feel like I know what we're talking about and it's not like doing shots and playing. Have you ever, you know, um, like there's a little structure here. There's uh, an understandable um Conversational structure that I can follow, and I'm not just um, throwing all the rules out the window. I think that that would be totally reasonable. Um, I, I think that that would be a good balance between what your co managers are doing, which you think is maybe fine for them, but not something that you want to replicate. Um, and that that doesn't mean that you have to start saying yes to everything. If people then start inviting you out to a ton more stuff, I think it would be fine to say, Hey, I love getting to see you guys when I can. I'm not often available for this, but um, have a great time. Um, and just They will, with time, um, come to understand that you do like them because you will show up to work every day and be nice to them. They will get it. They will realize that you have a slightly different relationship to being a manager than the other ones, and that will be fine. Um, But yeah, I think you can say yes a little bit more, but not a lot. And it's not necessarily going to heal the part of you that feels residually really um, lonely uh, based on the kind of like emotional narrative of the last couple of years. That's going to take a little more time to heal. And good luck. You sound like a pretty lovely person. Okay, last letter. You get to read it. There is some important information missing from this letter, in my opinion, Oh, and I look forward to speculating.
1: Yes, I wonder if we think it's the same information. (laughs) Let's find out. Subject. My friends hate my husband. Dear Prudence, I have two dear friends who don't like my husband. We're all around 50 and have been close for nearly 20 years most of them when I was single. One of them is married, and the other is a single parent. I married for the first time recently, and our new relationships are a challenge. My friends and I are progressive feminists who believe in social justice. My new husband is kind, caring, a little goofy, and while he doesn't use the same vocabulary we do, his actions are inclusive and kind-hearted. My friends have grown more distant since I got married. They don't include me as much anymore in get-togethers, And while we used to have dinner once a week, we hardly ever do so anymore. From their actions, it's clear they don't like my husband. They don't like his taste in music. They don't like his job and they don't like his sense of humor. I don't want to lose my female support network and I still want to be a good friend and support to them. I have also made a choice of who I want to love and be with. It feels like I'm now the outcast aunt married to the uncle that nobody likes and don't want to invite to the, to the family picnic. Change is hard, but does change have to mean I lose my friends because my new husband doesn't fit their ideals? I feel like I'm facing a future of trying to find time to get together with my friends without my husband when I have always included their families in everything and accepted that they're
0: packaged deals. So tell me what information you think is missing from this letter.
1: What kind of jokes does he make mm-hmm. uh, that they don't like? Um, like, what is his sense of humor? Uh, kind, kind of curious as to what his job is. Like, does he work for ICE or something? Uh, and, and then his taste in music. Like, I, yeah, there, there's a lot here that I would love, love to know more about. Um,
0: yeah. Yeah. I think this letter writer was vague on purpose. Yeah, that's what um, I think too. You've known these women for 20 years. You know them pretty well. You mention that they are progressive feminists who believe in social justice. And you only say that your husband doesn't use the same vocabulary. Mm -hmm. So somewhere in between those two things is a disconnect that's significant enough that they are pulling away. And I don't want to totally discount the idea that um, potentially there could be an element of snobbery here. Um, Potentially uh, that could have something to do with it. I'll leave that open. It sure doesn't sound like that's the primary reason. I think, letter writer, you need to be honest with yourself. Um, Specifically, have there been jokes that your husband has made in front of your friends that targeted them or people like them or that made it clear that he thinks that the things that they're committed to politically are stupid? Like, you know... I just, I think the reason that you were vague here is because you don't want to reflect on maybe why they feel this way. You just want to dwell on, well, I was always nice to their partners, and now it's my turn, and they're not doing their job. When that's really, you know, if he has been saying certain, like, there are absolutely things that I could imagine if your husband said would totally remove, like, any sense of like reciprocity from the equation of like, yes, you've been nice to my partner, but then, you know, your husband made a bunch of jokes making it clear that he doesn't think gay people are fully human. So fuck that guy. I'm not going to have dinner with him.
1: Yeah, which would be a, an incredibly reasonable boundary.
0: So, you, you know, I'm certainly not saying like you just have to deal with it. You probably have to leave him. Um, but if you want to talk about this with your friends, you need to be a little bit more honest with yourself first. Um, and you need to be prepared to hear like, you're right, I have pulled away and it's because your husband said X, Y, and Z. Um, and, you know, if if you hear that and you receive that information and you ultimately decide um, that you want to defend it, you may lose some friends. Um, you may feel a little caught in the middle of saying, I love my husband, but I don't like that he said that and I wish he would apologize, but he doesn't want to. I have to live in that tension. That would be a hard place to be in. Um, but again, without more information, I just don't know.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. Without without that key um, key context, it, it's it's a little difficult um, to see a way forward. If what if what if we <laughs> what if we entertained like the fantasy that the husband was actually not, uh, you know. A terrible, terrible person. Like, what would you, what would you advise um, the letter writer? How would you advise the letter writer to approach this? Like, as far as telling uh, or talking to to, her, to their friends.
0: Yeah, I mean, again, and I don't want to even put it in the category of like either he's a terrible person or he isn't. Like, it's certainly possible that he is a complicated person who said some shitty things that um, they don't like, and they have every you know reason to feel a particular way about it. So you know if you really do feel willing to listen to potentially difficult truths and i do think you need to be honest with yourself before doing that um then i think you know potentially talk to your husband about how he behaves in front of your friends if he has said or done something that you wish he hadn't um and you want to invite him to modify his behavior you can do that and then you know you can also go to your friends and say i've noticed a distance since i got married I realize some of this is hard because he's my husband and you might not want to criticize him to me. Um, But I miss you and I miss spending time with you. Um, Is there something in particular that's bothering you that's preventing us all from spending time together? And then also ask yourself, would you be willing to see your friends more just by yourself? Is there something that they could say to you that would feel like you would say like, I actually think that's being unfair to him. I think that I I wish you would give him another chance. Again, like, you know you'll need to use your judgment there I, obviously i am invited to speculate because you have not given us concrete details um and my gut instinct is that you have not because you know that if you did give us details we would not be on your husband's side yeah so framing it as like do i have to lose my friends because my new husband doesn't fit their ideals i think you are not being strictly honest with yourself i think you need to ask is there something he has done or said more than once um, that hurts them rather than he as a person doesn't fit their ideals. The question here is not who he is as a person. The question here is things that he has done or said. Um, that might make it feel a little bit less fraught, like they are a friendship tribunal um, calling him up and weighing his heart in the hand of Anubis. Um, this is about stuff he says and does, which are things that he can change as opposed to whether or not he meets an ideal, which would have to do with who he is. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I Yeah. That that is, um, that's absolutely right. Um, and it, and it, it's interesting that uh, that the letter writer, let's see, notes in, notes in, the, in their letter that, you know, the, the husband doesn't use the same vocabulary as as my friends and I do, but his actions show that he is caring and inclusive. And um, I guess I kind of want to I want to clarify that that words in some, like telling jokes also count. As counts as an action. Um, and so if he is if he is, you know, telling insensitive and hurtful jokes, that's not him acting in a caring and inclusive way. so i would I would encourage your letter writer to also um, examine your threshold for um, acts of kindness and and how your husband demonstrates that,
0: yeah, especially if it's like, Are, you know, his actions are inclusive and kind-hearted. Are these actions that everyone sees or are these actions that you see? Like, are these like, well, you're not with him. Like, you know, if this is, if the good stuff is stuff only you see and they've only seen, like, cruel or self-centered or unfriendly or dehumanizing behavior from him, then, yeah, of course they're not going to weigh the other stuff because they haven't seen it. Um, So, Again, I don't think that your friends dislike your husband because he's kind and caring. Um, I think you know that. I think you know that if there's something else at play, it's not because of that. Um, it may have to do with some snobbery stuff around his job that's important to pay attention to. The thing that seems the most likely is the a little goofy and doesn't use the same vocabulary. Um you know, you've gone from weekly dinners to hardly ever seeing each other. That's a pretty big shift after 20 years. Unless you think your friends have suddenly become wildly unreasonable people, my guess is that your husband has said or done something probably more than once um, that was sort of fucked up and that you didn't tell me because you're a little bit embarrassed about it.
1: Mm -hmm. Which, you know, know, it's, they may be right to be embarrassed and that's that's a good sign that Whatever Not when
0: you're trying to get to the bottom of what's going <laughs> yeah, on. Yeah, that's like, true. That's you got to push past yeah. the embarrassment. Yeah, um, yeah.
1: Anyway.
0: But yeah, I, I would just let go of the idea of I always included your families and now it's your turn because the question here is clearly um, about his behavior. And you just you got to get to the bottom of that before you can make a call. All right. Sydney. Thank you so, so much for coming on the show today. This was just fantastic. You're fantastic.
1: Thank you. Thank you. You are also fantastic. This is such an honor to be here.
0: I will try to uh, save up some linguistic specific questions in the future so that when we get you back on the show someday, it can be all about language. <laughs> Ooh, Oh, my gosh. That would be wonderful. Yeah. All right. Get out of here. Have a fabulous rest of the day. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Phil Circus, and our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate+. Plus. Go to slate.com slash prudypod to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR, that's 3327, and you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location, and at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short. 30 seconds, a minute tops. Thanks for listening.